good evening. Uh, lovely to be with you again. If you've got your Bibles with you, then please keep them open at uh, Luke 9. That will help you. Uh, where should you go if uh, you want to see the kingdom of God? After all, it's not a kingdom with a territory, at least not until Christ returns and <clears throat> reclaims this earth and makes all things new. You can't uh, kind of go to an embassy, get yourself a visa, jump on a plane and travel to the kingdom of God. Where should you go if you want to see the power of God? If you want to see God at work? Some people point to the natural world. My uh, grandmother... Uh, had a, she, her church had a little plaque just outside which said in the shrubbery, you're nearer to God in, the gar- in a garden. Is that true? Other people invite you to some kind of worship concert. You dim the lights, turn up the volume, hype up the crowd, out goes the uh, dry ice I don't know if this is how the Holy Spirit is supposed to kind of move among his people. And you feel something. But is it God? Other people want to lay hands on you and pray for healing or some kind of spine-tingling experience. Is that what we should do if we want to experience God's power in the world? Maybe. A desire to see the kingdom of God or to see God at work is not new. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, if you've got your Bibles in front of you. Verse 9, Herod asks, who then is this I hear such things about? And then Luke tells us, and he tried to see him. Herod wants to see Jesus. He wants to check him out. He wants a piece of the action. But he can't. He doesn't get to see Jesus. Can't find you. Can't track him down. Jesus isn't hanging around in the corridors of power. Only at the end of Herod's life does Herod actually get to see Jesus. It's interesting. I don't. I think this is Luke. Unique to Luke. Herod, uh, Luke describes how when Jesus was arrested and brought before Pilate, of course he's the Roman governor, Pilate discovers that Jesus is from Galilee, which notionally is under Herod's jurisdiction, so he sort of farms him off to Herod. And this is how Luke describes it. Luke 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. We know that because we've read Luke 9. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Wants to see the power of God. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Nothing. What does Herod see? Nothing. What does Herod hear? Nothing. Herod thinks this is his chance to see a sign, to see the kingdom of God, the power of God at work. What does he get? Nothing. Meanwhile, come back with me to Luke chapter 9, 
to the passage that we read. Look again at verses 10 and 11. When the disciples returned, Jesus just sent them away on a mission. They reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him. They withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed to them. He, sorry, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. He welcomed them. They've kind of gatecrashed his uh, R&R session with his disciples. They've come for a bit of a rest. The crowds turn up and Jesus welcomes them. Herod wants to see Jesus, but he can't. The crowds want to see Jesus, and Jesus welcomes them. But something I think even more significant is going on here. Look at how this story ends in verses 18 to 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private, this is sort of immediately after this feeding of the 5,000, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Okay, so Herod wants to see Jesus, but he can't. Meanwhile, the crowds are welcomed by him and the disciples see him, not just physically with their eyes, but with spiritual insight. They really see, they see who Jesus is, God's Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. The Greek equivalent is Christ. So Messiah is the same as Christ. And it was the word used to describe Israel's kings because they weren't crowned uh, like we, we uh, I don't know, crowned monarchs. I can't think of what the term is, you know, initiate monarchs today. They were anointed with oil. So the anointed one was the king. Except, of course, that in Israel, particularly as the king sort of went from bad to worse, the expectation grew. The prophets kind of fueled that expectation that one day God's ultimate king would come. The Christ, the Messiah. And that's what the disciples see. Why? Why do they get it all of a sudden? How is it that we can see that Jesus is the Messiah? I want you to sort of see with me how it is that Luke answers that question, how he puts, sets us up for that moment. In verses 7 to 9, Luke gives us three possible answers to the question of who Jesus is. He could be John the Baptist, raised from the dead. He could be Elijah. That, by the way, that might seem a bit random to us, but if you remember the story of Elijah, um, he, uh, he doesn't die. He gets taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. I, I hesitate to say this, but that's why England rugby supporters sing sweet low, uh, whatever it is we sing. <laughs> we don't get to sing it very often, so I've, I'm losing track of a swing low sweet chariot coming for to carry us home, for, for carry me home. Uh, I don't know whether they realize it, but they're alluding to that Old Testament story. And because Elijah had gone up to heaven without dying, this expectation grew that maybe one day he would come back to be the forerunner of God himself coming to rescue his people. So maybe Jesus is Elijah. 
Come back. Third option is maybe Jesus is one of the prophets of old. I think particularly that that what, uh, what, uh, what they have in mind there is that Moses said that one day another prophet would come and replace him. Another Moses, a great prophet who would reveal God to the, to the people. So you've got three options, John the Baptist, or a new Elijah, or a new Moses. We get exactly the same three options. So that's in the section just before the feeding of the 5,000, you got that? And then immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, we get the same three options when Jesus asks the disciples who the crowds think he's are. New John, new Elijah, new Moses. And then bang in the middle of these two kind of discussions about who Jesus might be is the feeding of the 5,000. That's where Luke has placed it. Why? Because this feeding provides a vital clue to who Jesus is. What makes the difference between Herod's unanswered question and the disciples' answered question is this party in the wilderness. In, in, I don't know if you can, in, in, in Mark's gospel, Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ after Jesus has healed a blind man. And Mark seems to be kind of uh, reinforcing in our minds that it's actually through Jesus' miracle that anyone sees who he is. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes his confe- uh, uh, Peter makes his confession and Matthew comments, well, the Father has revealed this to you, Peter. In Luke's gospel, Luke's point is Jesus is recognized through a meal. How is it that somebody gets to realize who Jesus really is? The answer is through his hospitality. Through this meal. He welcomed them, says verse 11. Here is Jesus as the host. And our English translations say in verse 15 that the people sat. It's literally reclined. So it's the language of sitting down or lying down for a meal in that culture. This is a banquet with Jesus as the host. Jesus is known through his catering. And that's because this story has three important echoes to the Old Testament. Three sort of stories in the Old Testament that kind of point us to who Jesus is. The first is God's provision of manna. You remember how God, when he leads the people out of Egypt, and they're there in the desert, and they grumble because they're hungry, and God sends down manna from heaven. And then now here is Jesus, they're in a wilderness place. And Jesus looks up to heaven and bread comes down. So Jesus is a new Moses about to lead a new exodus to rescue God's people from slavery. Not slavery in Egypt, but slavery from sin and from death. A little while later, Jesus is going to be transfigured. And Luke tells us that uh, Moses and Elijah... those two again, meet with Jesus in that moment and they discuss literally his exodus that he's about to achieve. So Jesus is a new Moses about to rescue God's people. But there's more. 
the feeding of the 5,000 would have reminded the people of another Old Testament story, story of Elisha. Elisha is kind of a new Elijah. Uh, he replaces Elijah. And this is a story from uh, uh, the life of Elisha. Uh, Elisha tells his servant to feed a group of prophets with 20 loaves. And this is what happens. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. 20 loaves, a hundred men. It's not going to do. The maths don't stack up. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. You see how the parallels with the feeding of the 5,000? Elisha tells his servant to feed a crowd. His servant protests, but not only is there enough, there's loads of leftovers. And now Jesus tells his disciples to feed a crowd. They protest, but not only is there enough, there's loads of leftovers. So maybe Jesus is the new Elijah or the new Elisha. In fact, Elisha means God saves. What does the word Jesus mean? The Lord saves. Maybe Jesus is the new Elisha, come to save God's people. But there's more than that going on here, I think. Jesus is not just a new prophet. He's not just a new deliverer. He is God's Messiah, come to rescue God's people. And the reason Peter can make that profession of faith It's because the feeding of the 5,000 has another important Old Testament echo. 800 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah had given this promise to the people from God. This is Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. When my friend uh, Peter turned 80... His son took him out for a birthday meal. Now his son happens to be a top surgeon, so they went out to a top restaurant. Uh, I mean a very posh restaurant. It was, in fact, my my friend Peter said, when when they opened up the menu, there were no prices. (laughs) He noticed that only his son's menu had prices on have anyone else been to a restaurant like that? I've never been to a restaurant like that. It would, it would scare me to death, to be honest. God will provide a lavish feast for his people to far surpass any five-star restaurant. And there are no prices on the menu. Only on God's menu is there a price. That's because the price of that meal has already been paid through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are invited. Isaiah issues the invitation. 
describes the feast in chapter 25. In chapter 55, he issues the invitation. Here's what the invite reads. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. We, you, are invited to this great banquet. And you're invited to come without money. There is no price because the price has already been paid. Not only that, no one need ever leave this feast. In Isaiah 55, did you notice? Death itself is on the menu. God, it, uh, God says God himself is going to swallow up death so that the feast goes on forever. And that is pictured very powerfully, I think, for us in this story, the feeding of the 5,000. In Luke 9, the disciples want to send the people away. Sort of getting to the end of the day, so they want to send them away. But Jesus makes it possible for them to stay. No one needs leave. And there's enough food. Whenever our church has any kind of a sort of church meal, uh, at some point, one of the women in our church will express some concern to me that we probably we might not have enough food. Now, I've been part of our church for long enough to realize that that never happens. So I always laugh at them. You know, they worry that we're going to have enough. We always have more than enough, and there's always loads left over. And so I laugh at them, except that recently the joke was on me. We were having a a church event, and uh, we were, my wife and I were driving to it, and I re- we, we realized we'd, 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 the cake that we had baked, we'd left it behind. And I thought, oh no, maybe the message didn't get around, and no one's going to bring any cake, and we won't have enough. And of course, there, that, when we arrived, there was a table groaning under the abundance of cake. The only risk involved that evening was diabetes. At the end, there was plenty left over. However, there was less than when we started. So we couldn't have gone on forever. But at this feast, hosted by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 9, there is more food at the end than there was at the beginning. Did you notice that? How much food did they begin with? Five loaves, two pieces of fish. That's seven seven items altogether. How much did they have at the end? Twelve basketfuls. I kind of like to think that that's that's one each for the disciples, in case you can't do the maths. And uh, I like to think that was Jesus' kind of um, gentle rebuke to them. They all have to carry a big basketful of food home because they were worried that there wouldn't be enough. There is more food at the end than there is at the beginning. And the point is, this is a picture of the feast that will last forever. 
It's known as the messianic banquet. God's Messiah is going to defeat death, put the world right, and enable us, his people, to enjoy a meal in the presence of God. It's a lovely description of God's coming world, of its provision and plenty and satisfaction. Now, the the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't the full deal, but it was a glimpse of it. Jesus is the host of God's great party. Jesus saw the crowd and welcomed them. This is how we know who Jesus is. He is God's Messiah because he welcomes us to God's messianic banquet. Now at this point you might well be saying, well that was all well and good for the disciples. They were there, they ate the bread, they collected the leftovers, but is it, does it make any sense for us? Is it credible? Can you really believe this? Because after all, this sort of thing doesn't happen in our world. This is not part of my experience. And I want to suggest to you, that's the point. This sort of thing doesn't happen in our world. Our world is a world of hunger, pain, suffering, wants. We've had a sort of picture of that in the uh, work of International Justice Mission earlier. Even in our neighborhoods, many of us, where, where most people have enough to eat, we still live in want. We're still not satisfied. We may not long for bread, but we long for meaning and fulfillment and identity, for community, for purpose, for joy. We long for the world to be sorted out. And Jesus doesn't fit in our world. Not because what he did couldn't happen or didn't happen. But because feeding 5,000 people with five loaves doesn't fit the patterns or, or expectations of our world. But to judge it by the standards of our world is to make a big mistake. To judge it by your experience is to miss the point. It doesn't belong in our world because it's a glimpse of another world. Of a world made new. Of God's coming world. This world, the world that you live in, that I live in, that we experience day by day, is is a world created by our rule, by human rule. This is what we do when we're in charge. And it's a world of famine and injustice and war and division. This is the kingdom of humanity. It's the kingdom of, of me and of you. But here... In the feeding of the 5,000, for a little moment in history, we were given a glimpse of God's coming world. A world, the, the kingdom of God. A world that's ruled by God. And 5,000 hungry people, verse 17, were all ate and were satisfied. It wasn't exactly the real thing. 5,000, a lot of people. It's not all God's people, and those people would be hungry again. So it wasn't the real thing, but it was a foretaste of the real thing. And those 12 basketfuls are a sign that this feast will continue on and on and on into eternity. There is more to come. There's another course and another helping. In fact, there's always another course, and there's always another helping. 
in God's messianic banquet. In this desolate place, as this group of needy people gathered together and shared food with Jesus at the center, with Jesus as the provider, there we see a glimpse of God's coming world. And brothers and sisters, in your local church, when you gather together as a group of needy people, and you share food with Jesus at the center and with Jesus as the provider, there you see a glimpse of God's coming world. Right here, right now in the midst of our broken worlds. As people from different backgrounds and personalities and nationalities come together to be family around the meal table, that's God at work. There's no other explanation. As I said last night, your, your local church might not be all you hope it would be. You might wish there were more people or even different people. It's not ideal. But don't let that blind you to the extraordinary reality that takes place every time you meet. The miracle that takes place before your eyes. The Christian community, your local church, is the beginning and the sign of God's coming world. And no more so than when we eat together. Our meals are a foretaste of the future. They reveal the identity of Jesus. Still today, Jesus is revealed around the meal table. As our meals demonstrate and proclaim God's grace. This is where you can see the kingdom of God. So Jesus provides for our future. That's what we see in this meal. A glimpse of the future. But also what we see here, if we have eyes to see it, is that Jesus provides through the cross. Let me read to you verse 16. Listen carefully. Taking five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples and set to set before the people. Now listen to Luke's description of the Last Supper. And Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Did you spot the parallel there? There are four verbs in each verse. Taking, thanking, breaking, given. The same four words in the same order. In other words, Luke is tying these stories together for us. Jesus is the Messiah who provides for his people, who hosts God's great banquet. And ultimately, he does that. He provides for us by dying for us. He welcomes us because he himself was abandoned on the cross. Back in chapter 9, as soon as he is proclaimed as Messiah by, Jesus at the clima- uh, by Peter sorry, at the climax of the story, he immediately then tells them that he must die. He is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that people expect. He's not some great hero who's going to drive out the Romans. He's the Messiah who provides for his people by dying in their place. There will be judgment, 
but it will fall on Jesus at the cross so that we, so that you can be welcome to God's great feast. So if we want to see the provision of God, if we want to see a picture of that great banquet, we need to look to the cross, not to some repeat performance. Jesus can do miracles today, I do believe that. I've heard amazing stories of God's provision of food appearing where there was no food. But those things are not the norm. If you want to see the power of God, if you want to see the kingdom of God, look to the cross. And in practice, can I say this? In practice, in the day-to-day rhythms of our lives, first and foremost, that means looking to the Lord's Supper. That's where we remember the cross more than anywhere else. This is, the, this is the act that Jesus himself gave us to help us remember the cross. And what is it? It's a meal. You remember we saw yesterday how Jesus eats with, his, with God's enemies as he eats with tax collectors. He does that when he eats in the house, when he meets the notorious sinner for woman in Luke 7. We saw yesterday he does it in the house of Levi, in the house of Zacchaeus. I mean, he's done it a number of times in Luke's gospel. God eats with his enemies. And that's what happens at the communion table. God is eating with his enemies. He is inviting us to come and eat with him. To share a meal with him. He is the host. And we are the guests. Ligon Duncan says, Isn't it amazing that we are invited to slide our knees under the table of God? Every communion meal is an embodiment of God's grace to us. We hear God's grace in the words that are spoken. But we also see God's grace and Touch God's grace and taste God's grace in the bread and wine. God in his kindness, Jesus in his kindness, knowing how frail we are, knowing how battered by life we can be, demonstrates his grace to us in bread and wine. I I want you to... I don't know what I want. I want you to marvel at that and, and welcome that, to have a sense every time you take communion that Christ Himself is communing with you, speaking to you afresh of His grace, of His welcome, of His provision. And not just with words, as if it's some kind of intellectual exercise, but knowing how frail we are with bread and with wine. Jesus welcomes us just as surely as he did the crowds of Galilee. And Jesus nourishes our souls just as surely as he nourished the bodies of those crowds in Galilee. Now I'll revert back to that's radical hospitality. That is the place where we really truly see radical hospitality. At every communion meal. 
We come with nothing and we receive Christ himself. And we get to do it week after week. Now I think, by the way, it's appropriate that sometimes in our communion meals that uh, there are moments that are solemn as we lament our sin, as we ponder the price of our salvation. Uh, But in the kind of tradition in which I grew up, that was the only note that was ever struck. I think too, as we take communion, sometimes there should be exuberant moments as we anticipate the joy and the plenty of the messianic banquet. This this communion meal is not only pointing us back to the cross, it's also pointing us forward to this great feast that Isaiah promises and Jesus pictures. As it were, when we take communion, we get a little foretaste. You know, a foretaste, it's a before taste. That's what it means. We get a before taste of heaven around the communion table. So Jesus provides for our future and Jesus provides through the cross. But one final point I want to make. Jesus provides in our mission don't know if you've ever been asked to cater for a large group of people. It's a bit of a headache, to be honest. You've got to ensure that there's enough food. You've got to ensure that all the special dietary requirements are met. The food has got to be properly cooked, apparently. It's got to be ready at the right time. Now imagine being asked to do all of that with no food. It's the um, mother of all headaches, isn't it? Jesus asks the disciples to do an impossible task. They feel totally unresourced. And then Jesus takes those resources and satisfies 5,000 people. You see, the question, this, this feeding of the 5,000 is not only set by Luke. I think Luke's genius, by the way. He not only sets it in the context of these questions about who Jesus is, top and tailing it with Herod's questions and the disciples' answers. He also sets it in the context of the disciples' mission. You notice that, how we, the chapter begins, verses 1 to 3. Jesus calls the 12 together, gives them power and authority, sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then, by the way, he says, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. So just clock what's going on here. Jesus sends the disciples out on mission, tells them not to take any bread. And then they come back and Jesus says, can you provide bread for 5,000 people? Did you, did you spot that? Some, somehow they've got to rustle up bread from nowhere, not just for themselves, but for a whole crowd of people just after Jesus has said, don't take any bread with you. 
Not only that, in, in the other Gospels, in Mark, in, uh, Mark well, whatever, the, you, you know what the other Gospels are. <laughs> it's late at night, my memory's going. In the other Gospels, the reference to, to how many people are in the crowd, 5,000 people, that comes at the end of the story, after Jesus has fed the crowd, to emphasize the ability of Jesus. Jesus has fed 5,000 people, wow. 5,000. Do you notice where it comes in Luke's gospel? It comes in the middle of the story. Just after Jesus has told them to feed the crowd. How many? 5,000. 5,000? How are we going to do that? It comes in the middle of the story to emphasize the inability of the disciples. So the other gospel writers are interested in the ability of Jesus. Luke's particularly interested in the inability of the disciples. They cannot do the task. I think Jesus is preparing them for his absence. He's going to go on and talk about that at the end of the chapter. The day is coming when he's going to give the disciples... Another impossible task. And by the way, it is the task that he has also given to us, the people in this tent. It is the task of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness to all nations. What can we do when faced with such a task? Well, the point of the story is Jesus asks us to give him the resources that we have and then to have faith in him. Because remember, that day, the disciples took home 12 basketfuls of leftover food. The, the impossible task was not only completed, it was over-completed. And by the way, those 12 disciples are now 2 billion disciples and counting. We've, we, we, you remember the story of manna in the desert? And how they uh, were not allowed to take manna for, for more than one day? If you took two days' worth, what happened? It stank you out. If you, you could only consume manna by trusting that God would provide again and again and again, if you thought that God was not going to provide tomorrow and you've got a bit extra, you just ended up with a stinky house. You had to trust that God would keep on providing. The same is true for the disciples here. They thought that five loaves was a finite resource that couldn't be shared. 5,000 satisfied people later, they each had a basket full of bread. So let me ask you, are you going to hold on to the resources that God has given you as if they are a finite resource? As if God is a finite God? Because if you do hold on to them in that way, they will stink you out. They will turn rotten in your hands. Can you reach your neighborhood with the gospel? Can you pluck up the courage to tell your friends about Jesus? Can you start a new church in your city? 
Can you feed 5,000 people with five loaves? No, we couldn't do that, could we? We don't have the money, we don't have the people, we don't have the courage. And Jesus says, give me what you have and trust me to provide. Serve me in the present and trust me for the future. And what you will find is that there is manna from heaven today and then tomorrow and again and again. You may even find yourself with a basket full of leftovers. A little later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. When God's kingdom is our priority, God promises to provide. And if you want to know the provision of Jesus in your life, then seek first his kingdom. Put yourselves in situations where you need him. So let me ask you as we close. Are you going to live as if God is a generous father? Are you going to give as if Jesus gives more in return so that you go home with a basket full of leftovers? Are you going to follow the Christ who takes our little, makes it a lot, and sends us home satisfied? Are you going to seek first the kingdom of God, trusting that all these things will be added to you? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a saviour. Your Messiah, your provider, your rescuer, who satisfies our needs. And through his cross and resurrection has made it possible for us, us, sinners though we are, to be welcomed to your great messianic banquet, that wonderful feast where we will eat and be satisfied, where we will eat in your presence. And, and the food will never run out. And the happiness and the laughter and the singing will never stop. Fill our hearts, we pray, with, with longing and hope for that day that we might live light as we pass through this earth. And that we might seek first your kingdom, trusting in that provision. Trusting that the Lord Jesus Christ will take our little and, and use it for his glory. Give us that joyful, generous faith that delights in you and your grace to us, your provision for us so that we become a generous, gracious people serving you in your world to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.